Chapter fourteen of the Autobiography of Moncure D. Conway, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Divinity School, Anthony Burns, the Fugitive Slave, Rufus Choate, Miss Davenport's Columb, Mother of Margaret Fuller, Sylvester Judd, Peripatetic Preaching, Miss Upham's Borders, My Experience as Proctor, A Curious Theft, our spiritualist classmate brings trouble. Anti-slavery gathering at Framingham, July 4, 1854. Sojourner Truth. Thoreau's Speech. Garrison Burns the Constitution. Our Fredericksburg and Falmouth community was too small for any youth to fly off from the old paths without exciting attention. There was a good deal of talk and inquiries were made about Unitarianism. Several citizens of Fredericksburg avowed unorthodox views, and the effect of my aberration was not entirely unfavorable to me. Occasionally ladies and gentlemen from Fredericksburg, whom I had never personally met, visited Boston and asked me to dinner at their hotel. One lady informed me that several years before she had known a young schoolteacher in Virginia from the North, one of the most attractive men she had ever met. He had died of consumption, and his last words were expressions of devotion to Emerson. Of course my old friends, the Methodists, had to face the question whether I was to be damned or not because of my unbelief. The most touching thing to me was that my dear mother searched her Bible with reference to my case, and found it clear that final salvation would come even to Leviathan. He shall make peace with me. Isaiah chapter 27 verse 5 If that crooked serpent must be saved, her crooked son was safe. I think indeed that I did something in my absence towards bringing other relatives over to grandfather's universalism. My Quaker friend William Henry Farquhar came all the way from Sandy Spring to visit me at Cambridge. The visit was very pleasant, but he discovered that I was living on vegetables. On his return he wrote to my sister that he was afraid I was insufficiently nourished. This caused a panic in the Falmouth household, and my father forgot his scruples about supporting me in a Unitarian school. His offer of assistance was affectionately acknowledged by me, but declined with the assurance that I had never been in want. I had indeed economized, because I wished to spend my money for concerts, etc., but even that need of economy was now past, as I had entered on my senior year, when students are allowed to fill pulpits. I was getting fifteen or twenty dollars every Sunday, and was boarding at the best table in Cambridge. But just then an event occurred which held momentous results for me. In May 1854 the fugitive slave Anthony Burns was arrested in Boston, and the city thrown into excitement. Anthony was from our county and about twenty. His owner, Captain Suttle, and William Brent, both well known to me, had come to Boston, and Burns was discovered. The city swarmed with an angry multitude, but the new fugitive slave law was now in force, and the President ordered a regiment to suppress any attempt at rescue. Around the courthouse were stretched chains under which the judges and lawyers had to bend on entering. The southern students at Cambridge assembled to offer their sympathy to the owner of Burns. 
I was notified, but replied that my sympathies were with the fugitive. On the Sunday after the arrest, I was in the vast congregation of Theodore Parker. A notice had been sent to all the churches asking their prayers that the fugitive might be delivered. Parker began his services by reading this notice, then quietly laid it aside with the remark, I have no intention of asking God to do our work. His prayer was for moral courage to the people, and not for the fugitive's rescue. His sermon came as if from his cherished heirloom, his grandfather's musket in the Revolution. The next morning I tried to get into the courtroom, but without success, and walked towards the jail, and from across the street observed the crowd. Near me I remarked Dr. O. W. Holmes, similarly engaged. The larger number held heavy sticks and appeared to be of the pro-slavery mob. I returned quietly to Cambridge, and next morning saw in the papers that there had been an attempt at rescue in which a marshal was killed. Hastening to Boston, I met Wendell Phillips in the street, and went with him to Tremont Temple, where a small number of anti-slavery leaders had gathered. Among them sat Wentworth Higginson, holding part of his cloak over his mouth. He had been wounded by a cutlass on his lip and on his neck. Parker spoke briefly. He was not willing, he said, to advise a risk he would not share, and regarded the slave's fate as decided. The personal fate of Tony was ultimately determined by the sum raised to purchase him. I was told that Captain Suttle was ready to sell him at once, but the district attorney, Hallett, determined that the dignity of the United States required the return of Burns to Virginia. Guarded by United States soldiers, Suttle and Brent marched with the fettered fugitive through streets draped in black, in one beneath a great flag turned upside down to which was suspended a coffin inscribed, The Death of Liberty. On the day before this scene, after leaving Tremont Temple, where I was a silent listener, I was approached by three or four men whom I had never seen, one of whom said, I am told that you are acquainted with the two slaveholders. Yes. Can you not call on them and find out the number of their room in the Revere House? No, I answered, shuddering at the suggestion, and passed on. Nothing could be easier than to send my card to those two men who had known me from childhood. Had I been capable of the treachery, their victory might not have been so complete. Had William Brent, a connection of our family, known this incident, and that it had lain in my hands to endanger him and Suttle, this famous case might not have had such serious consequences to my humble self. Though anti-slavery in sentiment, I was not connected with any party, and resented the indiscriminate denunciation of slaveholders. On the other hand, I was at times embarrassed by being addressed by the compromisers as if being a Virginian I was pro-slavery. But this feeling was at the mercy of any engaging personality. Thus I was captivated by the genius of Rufus Coate. I heard several speeches from him in the law courts, and was thrilled by his power. Then I made the acquaintance of his daughters, through our common enthusiasm for music, for by this time I had become a frequent contributor to Dwight's Journal of Music, 
and one of Rufus Coates' daughters, Mrs. Helen Bell, not only beautiful and witty, but wonderful at the piano, used to invite me at times to her father's house. I was introduced to her by Miss Abby Adams, to whom Emerson confided me, and who had real genius for music. To the choice concerts of the Mendelssohn Quintet Club, or of Otto Dressel, I at times accompanied these ladies, and now and then met Rufus Coate. Never was man more charming in his family. There was often a play of wits between him and his daughters. He had no taste for music, and I was told that his daughters once persuaded him to go to the opera. He looked at the libretto helplessly and said, "'Helen, expound to me this record, lest I dilate with the wrong emotion.' No, there was no resisting Rufus Coate. We had a story at Divinity Hall that, in the course of a speech against the introduction of the slavery question into the pulpit, Rufus Coate exclaimed, I go to my pew as I go to my bed, for repose. Mrs. Bell was, I think, one of the circle, then small, that loved Robert Browning's poetry. She was the friend of Mr. and Mrs. James T. Fields, whose house was the literary salon in Boston, and who personally knew the Brownings. To our amazement and delight, Miss Davenport, afterwards wife of General Lander, who had been charming people of fine taste during an engagement at the Howard Athenaeum, announced for her benefit night Browning's Colum's birthday. We could hardly believe our senses. I rushed about to tell the news to the Longfellows, Palfreys, Mrs. Sparks, and persuaded some students to go, despite their protests that they could not understand Browning. There was thus a good contingent from Cambridge. The play was admirably acted. In after years, when my wife was the intimate friend of Mrs. Lander, this lady told us that it required all her courage against theatrical advisers to present that play— it was because she so loved it. Finding that she had a sympathetic valence to support her, she and he toiled until they had drilled the other characters. The students who had complained of Browning's obscurity now discovered that he was clear enough when action accompanied the word. But Jennison told me that when he applauded a certain passage, a bewildered man in front of him turned round to look at him, and exclaimed, "'Good God!' It was Pippa Passes that first attracted me to Browning, and I mentioned Pippa as a type of unconscious influence in some sermon. But when, in 1854, I presented Browning's works to my sister, in her seventeenth year, probably recommending Pippa, my mother was disturbed by it, the episode of Sebald and Ottima being too passionate for young people to read. It was always a sad reflection that I could never meet Margaret Fuller. Some of her writings, together with the memoirs written by her friends, perfect monument of a beautiful soul, had been to me on my Methodist circuit as that manna which had the taste of all in it. Her mother resided at Cambridgeport with her son Arthur, a Unitarian preacher, killed while chaplain in the Union Army near Fredericksburg. With no introduction except my feeling about Margaret, I was received by her mother with warm welcome. She told me much about Margaret, 
and said that while she appreciated most highly the memoirs, she was astonished that Margaret should be spoken of as plain. With much naivete she said, I always regarded Margaret as beautiful. This tribute from the mother confirmed what I had heard from others, that the woman of such fine brain had recognized the mystical beauty of home experiences and affections. If we only knew how to look around us, we should not need to look above. Had no other pearl fallen from Margaret's lips, these words alone would be a talisman of life. In those days I read with enthusiasm the works of Sylvester Judd, the minister who had so charmed me at Baltimore when I was leaving Methodism without knowing whither I was bound. He was my pastor, though I never heard him preach nor touched his hand. In his marvelous story, Margaret, the whole spiritual history of New England was revealed to me, and I mourned with his flock in Augusta at his premature death. In afterlife I discovered that Margaret Fuller was the first to recognize a kindred spirit in Hawthorne. On seeing in The Token, 1832, his tale, The Gentle Boy, she had sent him, or rather her, for she supposed the writer a woman, a grateful message. She also knew the fine soul of Judd. My friend Alexander Ireland gave me a copy of a letter written to him by Margaret Fuller from London, October 6, 1846, in which she says, I am much pleased to have your feeling of Margaret. As you say, there are such things in real life. Yet I fancy the picture, like that of an antique Venus, was painted from study of several models. The writer, Sylvester Judd, a name as truly American in its style, as that of one of his own invention, Beulah Ann Orff, is a man approaching middle age, who has hitherto only made himself remarked by one or two strokes of character, of a kind noble and original. I have never seen him, but some years ago received from him this message, that he wished to know I had one admirer in the state of Maine, a distinction of which I am not a little proud, now that I have read his book. He is a clergyman, but it seems has not for that forgot to be a man. Time allows me now to say no more except that I am ever, dear sir, in friendly heart and faith yours. I should be much interested at any time to know what any or all of you are doing for the good of others and your own, what feeling, what hoping. To the new fraternity I think we belong, where glory is service, whose motto excelsior. And a footnote. My senior year was happy. There were vacant pulpits to be supplied in many surrounding towns. I was employed every Sunday, expanding my old Methodist sermons with the liberal leaven, at each place entertained by the best families, and making friendships cherished through life. At Plymouth, for instance, I always stayed at the house of Andrew Russell, an excellent type of the vertebrate New Englander. It was with a sense of glory well remembered that I preached my first Thanksgiving Day sermon in the old Plymouth Church, and summoned the helpless pilgrims as a cloud of witnesses to ideas for which they would have banished me. At Marblehead I used to stay with the Delanos, and found the grand old captain as charming an ancient mariner as any dreamed of by Coleridge. 
At Miss Upham's table I made acquaintance with students of other professional schools, among these the brothers William and Joseph Choate. They were affable young gentlemen, and one could have predicted their eminence. I used to think Joseph Choate, now ambassador in England, the most unpretending, very handsome youth I ever met. For a time my seat at table was beside young William Gibbons of New York, of whom I expected a distinguished career, which no doubt would have been achieved but for his early death. During my senior year I was appointed Proctor of Divinity Hall. Those who resided in the hall were professional students, one being a law student, Henry Gardner Denny, to whom I was especially attached. One room was occupied by a tutor in the college, the Reverend Mr. Jennison, and the only case in which I had to interfere officially was when some undergraduate guests in the hall took a fancy for banging at Jennison's door, then hiding. Jennison was studious and needed quiet, and the noisy youths were easily persuaded that he was not a well-selected victim. Jennison was an unpretending man, and agreeable in conversation. He had a reputation among us for love of paradoxes, and a fable said that he once began a chapel prayer with the words, Paradoxical as it may seem, O Lord, it is nevertheless true that all flesh is strictly grass. Jennison was cautious not to mingle in the polemic between our right and left wings, but he once expressed to me his sympathy with those who believed the miracles without believing them miraculous. The examinations being over, and the day of departure near, Denny, Ware, and myself, intimate friends, resolved on a last supper together. Drinking wine was usual, but it was against regulations for students to have wine in their rooms. Our examinations, however, were over, our school life ended, so we procured three bottles of claret for our supper. These were placed in Ware's room two days before, but when we came to open them only two were found, and both filled with water. And now my duty as proctor, forgotten in agreeing to the wine, became for the first time important. An extended investigation led me to identify the thief. He was one of our class, and in a few days would enter the ministry. I reported all the facts to Dr. Noyes, who went with me to the room of the suspected student, whom I will call X. The door had to be forced. He had cleared out, carrying all his belongings. It was supposed that he knew he had been discovered. An empty claret bottle was in his room. Dr. Noyes, having consulted his colleagues, made some remarks on the case to the students next morning. It was, he said, happily without precedent in the history of the college, and it was some satisfaction that X had himself relieved the school of his presence and had not entered the ministry. As for the wine, it is contrary to the rules of the school that such things should be taken to the rooms. In the present case the proctor has discharged his duty with regard to a grave offence, one which, undiscovered, might have had serious consequences. This duty he has discharged, without considering at all his own liability to censure. Under these circumstances we overlook that matter of the wine altogether." 
The benignant look with which these simple words were said, the gentleness of voice, and the applause of the students moved me deeply. X was often inquired about by some of us, but nothing was ever heard of him until 1859, when he was killed at Harper's Ferry, being one of John Brown's men. My belief being that most of John Brown's men were unwittingly led into the raid, I have made X one of the characters in my pine and palm, his offense there being different, but nobly expiated. Our spiritualist classmate, Fowler, ultimately brought one or two of us into trouble. When our time of graduation was near, and our addresses submitted to the faculty, Fowler's was found to be an elaborate defense of spiritualistic miracles, combined with a repudiation of those narrated in the Bible. The faculty refused to pass the essay. Fowler complained that his liberty was assailed, and several of us, while without any sympathy with his spiritualism, regarded it as a duty to stand by him. We refused to deliver our addresses unless Fowler's was admitted, and the result was disagreeable for all parties. At the meeting of the alumni in the afternoon, Theodore Parker, seconded by the Reverend John Weiss, asked of the faculty an explanation of this unprecedented silence of several graduates. Dr. Noyes replied that the forbidden essay was so crude and defiant in tone that it was impossible to admit it. We who had sided with Fowler had not thought of that. The question of liberty was at an acute stage, and we supposed this the crisis. But our champions, Parker and Weiss, saw that we had staked our principle of liberty on a bad case. We were put to confusion, there being no opportunity for us to complain that the matter had not been set before us in the right light when we made our protest. We ought, of course, to have ourselves demanded of Fowler the critical perusal of his essay before our action. But we were young and hasty, and our mature teachers might have saved us from the mistake by a private interview. It was the anti-supernaturalists of the class who had rebelled. One of our main arguments had been the inferiority of the testimony to the New Testament miracles, to the contemporary evidence for the absurd spiritualist miracles. We had leaped to the conclusion that our professors had suppressed Fowler simply because his essay applied this crux, and took it for granted that the essay was otherwise satisfactory. Fowler printed it as a pamphlet. I left the alumni meeting sore enough, when suddenly I met Emerson crossing the yard. His look, his smile, his friendly greeting at once began to heal my wound. He saw that I was troubled, and I said, Yes, I am misunderstood. To be great is to be misunderstood, remarked Emerson. I walked beside him in the direction he was going, and related the facts briefly. He then told me that after graduation his ambition had been to fill a chair of rhetoric. I was startled by this, and he said there was not sufficient training in the art of putting things, this being the secret of eloquence. The young ministers might utter any paradoxes whatever, without exciting hostility, if their statement were set forth in the best form of which it is susceptible. I afterwards had an interview with Dr. Noyes, which consoled me, 
especially as the affair excited no comment in the papers. I asked him if it would be well for me to write a quasi-apologetic statement in the Unitarian paper. "'It is well to remember,' said Dr. Noyes, smiling pleasantly, "'if you are ever tempted to air a grievance in the press, that it is a thing too may engage in.' It is a grotesque thing to look back upon that my first little Unitarian martyrdom was in defense of a spiritualist. As the incident did not affect our diplomas and degree at all, it was hardly mentioned in the papers. It soon passed out of my thoughts before the very serious issue pressed on me by the acute crisis in the country. The passage through Congress of the Kansas-Nebraska Bill, May 30, 1854, repealing the Missouri Compromise, made a casus belli between slavery and freedom, and this was almost simultaneous with the triumphant parade through Boston of the slave-hunters carrying Anthony Burns back into slavery. Someone who had spoken with Burns in prison told me he was much frightened and preferred returning quietly rather than have any attempt at rescue. With my abhorrence of violence, I considered him right, but all the more felt that the time had come for vehement utterance. The anti-slavery leader, Garrison, was a non-resistant, but the possession of every branch of the government by the slave power, and its domination over all the state laws protecting personal liberty, mingled with the moral issue the patriotic sentiment of independence which had confronted George Third. The young Unitarian minister at Worcester, Wentworth Higginson, was eloquent though always calm, and his wound received in the attempted rescue of Anthony Burns was also eloquent. The impending struggle for freedom in Kansas was revealing the weakness of the non-resistant wing of the anti-slavery society. On July 4, 1854, the annual gathering of the abolitionists in Framingham Grove occurred. As a studious observer of the movement that so deeply concerned me personally, I attended. My brief speech was a plea for peaceful separation of North and South after the manner of Abraham and Lot. I dreaded the angry passions rising on both sides more than slavery. There were several striking incidents at this Framingham gathering. A very aged Negro woman named Sojourner Truth, Lank, shriveled, but picturesque, slowly mounted to the platform, amid general applause, and sat silently listening to the speeches. After some stormy speaker, a young Southerner rose in the audience and began to talk fiercely. There were cries of, Platform! and Garrison, who presided, invited the youth to come up and speak freely. The young man complied and in the course of his defense of slavery and affirming his sincerity, twice exclaimed, "'As God is my witness!' "'Young man!' cried Sojourner Truth. "'I don't believe God Almighty ever hearn tell of you!' Her shrill voice sounded through the grove like a bugle, shouts of laughter responded, and the poor Southerner could not recover from that only interruption." Thoreau had come all the way from Concord for this meeting. It was a rare thing for him to attend any meeting outside of Concord, and though he sometimes lectured in the Lyceum there, 
he had probably never spoken on a platform. He was now clamored for, and made a brief and quaint speech. He began with the simple words, "'You have my sympathy. It is all I have to give you. But you may find it important to you.' It was impossible to associate egotism with Thoreau. We all felt that the time and trouble he had taken at that crisis to proclaim his sympathy with the disunionists was indeed important. He was there a representative of Concord, of science and letters, which could not quietly pursue their tasks while slavery was trampling down the rights of mankind. Alluding to the Boston commissioner who had surrendered Anthony Burns, Edward G. Loring, Thoreau said, The fugitive's case was already decided by God, not Edward G. God, but simple God. This was said with such serene unconsciousness of anything shocking in it that we were but mildly startled. William Lloyd Garrison made that July 4th a judgment day. He read the Declaration of Independence, then contrasted its principles with the fugitive slave law, the judgment of Loring surrendering Anthony Burns, and a charge of United States Judge Curtis on the treasonable attempt to rescue Burns. Lighting matches, he burned successively these documents, after each crying, and let all the people say Amen. The Amens were loudly given, but at last Garrison uplifted a copy of the Constitution of the United States, and read its compromises with slavery and the slave trade. He then declared it the source of all the other atrocities, the original covenant with death and agreement with hell, and held it up burning until the last ash must have singed his fingers. So perish all compromises with tyranny, he cried, and let all the people say Amen. There were mingled Amens and hisses, and some voices of protest, but there stood the adamantine judge parting to right and left the leaders of the people, constitutionalists, free soilers, and abolitionists. That day I distinctly recognized that the anti-slavery cause was a religion, that Garrison was a successor of the inspired axe-bearers, John the Baptizer, Luther, Wesley, George Fox. But as I could not work with Lutheran, Methodist, or Quaker, I could not join the anti-slavery society. There was a Calvinistic accent in that creed about the covenant with death and agreement with hell. Slavery was not death, nor the South hell. I did not care about the Constitution, and my peace principles inclined me to a separation between sections that hated each other. Yet I knew good people on both sides. I also believed that slavery was to be abolished by the union of all hearts and minds opposed to it, those who believed emancipation potential in the Constitution, as well as the Constitution burners. I had some conversation with Rev. Samuel J. May on this subject, and I think it was during the interval for luncheon at the Framingham meeting, for I remember his saying to a Southerner, probably the one rebuked by Sojourner Truth, who declared himself sincere, I am afraid you are. 
However that may be, I remember my friend May, a sweet spirit as well as an impressive preacher, saying that Garrison's vehemence was not against the Southerners, but the Northern allies of slavery. I remember, said May, being with him at a meeting, and saying, Mr. Garrison, you are too excited, you're on fire. Garrison answered, I have need to be on fire, for I have icebergs around me to melt. The anti-slavery families out there in the Framingham Grove treated me almost affectionately, inviting me to their luncheons spread on the grass, because I was a Virginian. But I was, in truth, almost as lonely as the Carolinian humiliated by sojourner truth. Did that old African fate tell the truth about me also? Did God know anything about me, a Virginian, with a strange burden every day getting heavier? Ah, yes, I went back to Boston and found a letter from the Unitarian Church at Washington inviting me to preach for them during September, and intimating that a permanent minister was needed there. The way, then, was opening before me. End of chapter 14, read by Margaret Espayat.